Coming up on today's show. The fun part about it was we put together this brief 30-minute performance, but everybody sat and listened. I mean, I remember the Obamas sitting there in the front row. to another new episode of Now Hear This Entertainment featuring interviews with guests who are having success in entertainment, primarily music. I am Bruce Wozniak talking to guests who are singers, songwriters, musicians, recording artists, and more from the worldwide music community. Get in touch with me by writing to podcast at nhte.net or instead of email, you can DM me through the at Now Hear This Entertainment Instagram account. Joining me today on the Now Hear This Entertainment guest line from St. Louis, my guest is a composer and an acclaimed jazz pianist and the founder of Open Studio, which is the world's leading jazz education platform. His newest album was just released on December 1st and features his brand new quartet. His touring career has taken him to six continents numerous times, and he played in the White House by invitation from President Obama several times. He performed on and arranged Diane Reeves' Grammy-winning release, A Little Moonlight, and appeared in George Clooney's 2005 film, Good Night and Good Luck, as well as being the featured pianist and an arranger on the Grammy-winning soundtrack. He has also performed, toured, and recorded with names like Wynton Marcellus and Chris Bode, as well as the Berlin Philharmonic, Chicago Symphony Orchestra, and the New York Philharmonic. You've been hearing a song of his called Groove Echo Chamber, Welcome to Now Hear This Entertainment, Peter Martin. What's going on, Bruce? What's happening, everybody? Peter, great to have you here. Thanks for making time to do this. Absolutely. Pleasure to be here. We've got a lot to try to cover today, but first let's start off by having you share with the audience about the song of yours that was just playing called Groove Echo Chamber. Yeah, so that was one of those tunes. I wrote that in August. It had been rattling around in my head for a while, though. So I kind of knew what it was going to be like. I just hadn't committed to the final state. And so it's always fun coming up with tunes like that because, you know, some people might be like, oh, it kind of it writes itself. But it definitely didn't do that. It's just I had it sort of formulated in my mind. It was just a matter of putting it down on paper and making some structural decisions. And so I always liked it. I liked playing it. I liked the way it sounds. And um, I've gotten better at not, uh, hopefully better at not tinkering with, some stuff that I like that comes out of me too much. Whereas when I was younger, it'd be like, well, is this, you know, is this need to be changed because it's too simple or too complex or, or trying to make it into something. Now I'm sort of like, I like it. That's what it is. It's done, you know? Mm. And so I enjoy listening to that cut. It came out uh, because of the great performances by the, the artists on the record. They really had some wonderful contributions, both in the kind of rehearsal process and, just spontaneous in terms of like their interaction, all of our interaction and the solos and stuff that really added to it. Um, So it it came out like I was hoping even better uh, than I thought. And I just Mm -hmm. love it. I like the energy on it. I think it's a, it's a nice entry point. So when you say it was rattling around in your head for a while, did you at some point actually sit and play a little bit of it on the piano just to kind of take it from your mind onto the keys or was it no it was literally just in my head the whole time until I finally put it down on paper yeah it was probably 90% in my head you know and then when I sat down and started to sort of actualize it at the piano um, I made a few little tweaks as I went but what I did was I basically I recorded that first version of sitting at the piano and actually put it on um, my Instagram like the first take of it. I just had mm. one of my guys here in the studio just record it on my phone. And I said, let me put this out and just see what folks think about it. Cause I liked it. You know, I wasn't necessarily going to change it if they said something, but <laughs> at least if they're like, this is the worst thing I've ever, I mean, I was just a little bit of feedback, which is fun. You know, to me, that's like the interesting part about social media. And so uh, that, what I ended up doing was taking that version that I recorded it just spontaneously. And just basically I had my transcriber, write a chart out from that. And then I made Mm. a few little tweaks just because of instrumentation and stuff. But basically the way that I sat down and did it, even like 
with some inner baseball stuff of like how the form unfolded and stuff. I just used that original improv that I did, but I definitely had a framework that was in my mind before it. It wasn't just spontaneous. When you say that you put it on social media, I can sense the excitement that you had for it. Is that something that you have tried to do in the past? And like you said, you're probably at the point in your career where it's like, I don't really care what everybody thinks. I'm just doing it because I'm excited. The possible exception being, as you described, unless there was a landslide of pushback on it. But is that (laughs) something you've tested before with social media or was Groove Echo Chamber just something that lit you up so much that you said, let's post that? Yeah, I mean, that was just sort of the impetus to do it. But I, I definitely get a little bit more calculating in terms of like, I do like to get the feedback and see how people react to things so that I get a more accurate view it's also just an outlet to put something hopefully beautiful out into the world. So I don't want to be so precious about what I'm doing to be like, we have to wait till it's part of a perfect album and then it'll be released and bestowed upon people. It's like, no, if I have something (laughs) that's fun and that I'm enjoying, let me contribute into the world. I mean, there's plenty of people putting ugly things online. So instead of just complaining about that, you know, I'm not a chef, but I'm a piano player. So my job is to serve up music. And I think as jazz musicians, Uh, similar to classical musicians and I kind of came up in both worlds, but like sometimes we're a little too precious about everything waiting Mm. for something to be perfect or at the perfect situation or with the perfect microphones. I mean, I love having a great studio set up and we've got a cool thing happening here, but it's like sometimes just put up on your phone, something cool. and, And if it puts a tap in somebody's foot or improves their day or something, then I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing on this planet. Yeah, if this was a video podcast, people would see me smiling right now as I'm listening to you say all that. And I think the thing is that, you know, that 90% thing of, you know, yeah, it was mostly just in my head. I think what that translates to is what you're saying that, okay, you know, I had a pretty good feel. In other words, all the T's don't have to be crossed. All the I's don't have to be dotted. If most of them are, and it is making people feel the way it's making them feel, well, then let's just keep it as is. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Congratulations on the new album that I mentioned in the intro. As I had said, it just came out on December 1st, and it's called Peter Martin and Generation S. Audience, this was a truly unique recording project. And Peter, I'm sorry to have to ask you to hold off still on what I'm going to be anxious for everyone to hear about how the album was recorded. But first, I would love it if you could just talk initially about the music itself, the eight songs that are on this album in terms of the style, maybe over what period of time you composed all of them, perhaps a theme that runs through them, those kinds of details first before we talk about the recording process. Yeah, sure. So um, all the music is original. I composed it all in mostly in August, a little bit the end of July and August of last year of 2023. Some of them were like Groove Echo Chamber where they were kind of percolating in my head. I see most of them. It's a varying degrees, but otherwise, you know, I sat at the piano and just, I had some notes of different things. I always keep like a music notebook of just ideas and it's always way more than I can sort of actualize at any time. But because I was writing this music for a specific album, a specific group of musicians, a specific instrumentation. uh, And it was, I knew it was going to happen very quickly I wanted to put the music together so that it, it fit together. There was a couple of compositions that I loved, but I just couldn't find a way for them to fit with each other. So those mm. got put to the side for maybe a future project or whatever. So I was very intentional about making, at least on some level, kind of an old school kind of jazz album. I'd say like the type of album that, just in case anyone still does this, <laughs> listens from <laughs> beginning to end, that it would make sense. It's not a suite or anything, and it can certainly be enjoyed, I think, track by track and jumping around but i wanted it for sure to make sense the same way you go to a concert or a really well programmed set that it kind of is a story a complete story the whole thing as opposed to just a bunch of disparate parts um so that was really exciting to me because it just sort of guided me in terms of how to write and what to include and perhaps Mm. what not to whereas when i was younger i would take that as like really a difficulty. It's like, uh-oh, what am I going to do? How do I fit into these constraints? I, I kind of leaned into those guardrails and uh, that helped me to, to get the thing done. This was probably the most seamless composition process and period that I've ever had. Mm. Uh, it just kind of, everything came out. I mean, way more than I needed for the records. A lot of my energy was just spent like picking and choosing and then refining once I got sort of the final set of compositions together, starting to think about how they would work as an album. 
and that idea of one song flowing nicely into the next for a reason, it really makes sense, audience, when you consider that, as you're going to hear later on when I give you all the plugs for where you can find Peter and the music and everything, that it is available on vinyl and CD. So you joked a little bit, Peter, but yeah, for the people that do like to sit and listen for the experience from start to finish, it's going to mean a lot more to them. But now let's get into talking about how this album was recorded, because if I've got this correct, not only were all the songs done straight through one take without edits, and oh, by the way, live streamed around the world, let me know if I have that correct and more so why you chose to do it that way and how you and the other musicians handled the pressure of doing it that way. Yes. No, yeah, you, you do have it correct. And it sounds like it was sort of a gimmick. And to be honest, it's a little bit of a gimmick. And that was sort of my intention. Um, but it's mostly probably 90% of it was really to, you know, hopefully guide us into a finished product that really made sense and that worked well. So sort of like doing it in one take really came out of a lot of experience that I've had in making albums with, you know, both my own albums and with some wonderful artists over the last 30 plus years. And many times, I mean, the vast majority of the sessions, especially the good ones that I've been on, the great kind of classic tracks that the listeners really enjoy and that we as the creators appreciate are in fact first takes. So we might do two or three takes, sometimes even four or five. And in order to get to some level of perceived perfection, either by the producer or the leader or whatever, or sometimes just to fill up time because we're in the studio and, hey, let's do another take and see what happens. But the way that jazz music, I think, I mean, I hesitate when it's done correctly because there's all ways to do this. But I think when we're able to sort of lean into the things that people really love about jazz music, improvisation, interaction amongst the musicians, a certain serendipity in the moment to what's going to happen. Like those are hallmarks of jazz. Those are markers and things that we excel at, you know? Um, and so that all lends itself to first takes being really interesting, and exciting. So what's happened before is like, we'll do additional takes and maybe some little details get cleaned up, but that energy and the vibe of the first take, you never quite have mm. that, you know, because if the first take goes really well, you end up trying to recreate that mm. on the next take, or you sort of get inside your head. Not to say that there aren't some wonderful later takes that happens, but I was like, I know we can do this, so why don't we just do it? Because it'll be fun, and it'll give us an edge in terms of the energy and the interaction and the improvisation. I, you know, That was sort of my hypothesis. The other side of that was that I've been involved with some live recordings in front of an audience. So like I did a record back in the 90s with Joshua Redman live at the Village Vanguard, which of course was first takes because they were just recording the gig. Sure. I mean, they recorded several nights, so there was a choice, but we were never doing it the same tunes again right away. And that record is one that over the years, I think more people have told me like, I love you playing on that record. Oh my God, I love that. I like people love those live records. So mm. I was like, why don't we do this more? And so my little novelty spin on it was, let's do it in the studio so we can take advantage of the sound and let's shoot video because we're going to be in the studio, but let's not have an audience. And I didn't want to try to do too many yeah. things at once. We were yeah. already doing a lot, but <laughs> it was like, let's do a studio record, but let's just plan on doing it in one take. Cause I was like, what's the worst thing that happens? It falls apart and we don't do it in one take. That's no uh, problem. We'll just do that. You know? Yeah. But then I wanted to make sure that we were optimized and a little bit of pressure to do it in one take. So we decided to, live streaming at the same time because we were already set up to shoot video because I wanted to present the video aspect of it. So we actually live streamed it on YouTube. And that was a little bit of a hedge in case people said, oh, how do we know you really did it in one take? I was like, well, uh, a lot of people tuned in live and saw it. So Let me stop you because I have all these ideas, all these follow-up thoughts rushing into my head, and I want to see if I can remember them all. Number one, I love gimmicks. I'm not ashamed <laughs> to say it. I love gimmicks, so I love that you said, yeah, it was partly a gimmick. Number two, bravo, Peter, because it was a brave gimmick. Mm -hmm. Number three, I do like the idea of 
we're going to do it all in one take and this is going to be what we're putting out as the album because there's a sense of urgency insofar as you said, you know, three takes, four takes, five takes. Sometimes it's, well, let's just come back tomorrow and we'll try it again or let's do it next week. And all of a sudden the deadline gets pushed back and pushed back and pushed back. And there's no real urgency to finish the project. If you're doing it at the wrong time of year, then it's, well, you know, we're running into the holidays. Let's wait until next year or the studio isn't available. So doing it all in one straight take, well, now you know the album is going to get done. And number four is because it is a quote-unquote live show, the artists, the musicians, the performers, they show up the same way they do to the stage and say, I got to get this right tonight. There is no second chance. There is no second take on this. And so I think they're showing up to that a little bit differently than a studio session where, yeah, you always want to do your best work, but you do know that, oops, hold on, wait, let me try that again. Yes, yeah. Well, you said it way better than I did. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think that's spot on. And I mean, in full transparency, I had some amazing musicians. Like I was very calculating with sort of how I put the groups together and the experience level and the interaction. Still, I mean, you never know what's going to happen, but that was sort of my head. And the reason I could take risks in these other areas is I didn't really take very many risks on the quality level of the musicianship. And I've got a lot of experience in doing this, at least evaluating other players and kind of knowing how these things fit together. So I tried to use a combination of like lower risk along with a couple of sort of high risk things so that, you know, the thing could possibly work. And it did. So I was excited. And I knew that our conversation would tell me where is the right place to ask this question. So please, by all means, go ahead and tell the audience who those other musicians were that were part of this. Yeah, so it's a quartet, including myself, it's four of us on there. I'll sort of break it down. So there's the old guys and there's the younger gal. It's kind of easy when you see us live. Like we got three Gen Xers and one, is she a Gen Z or millennial? I'm not even sure. I'll start with her, Sarah Hanahan. She's the incredible saxophonist. She's about 25 or 26 years old now. And she's, you know, really making a name for herself on the scene and I just, I love her playing, but this was my first time ever playing with her. I mean, we rehearsed Mm. for two days before we recorded, but this is my first time ever playing with her. And then on bass, we had Ruben Rogers and on drums, Greg Hutchinson. And they're both, you know, kind of around my age. And actually Greg and I are exactly the same age, born in 1970. And we've been playing together for many years, all three of us, sometimes two at a time, sometimes all three together. And they played on several of my records. We played trio, we've toured, with Diane Reeves. I mean, we've done a lot of things over the years, although we haven't played much together over the last four to five years. And Greg and Ruben are both like known as either the top or like basically in a small group of the best bass player and best drummer in modern jazz generation. So they're, you know, incredible players have incredible experience, extremely exciting players, you know, top shelf, top shelf. And then we introduced this other element of Sarah in, that is top shelf as well, but doesn't have the experience level we have, um, but has the passion for the music and the language in common with us. And I first heard Sarah in 2019 at the Betty Carter Jazz Ahead program at the Kennedy Center. That's where I first heard her play. Mm. And the Jazz Ahead is a wonderful program that was started by Betty Carter before she passed away and then was picked up by Dr. Billy Taylor and the Kennedy Center and it's continued on. And it's a very high level, selective intensive sort of pre-professional program for sort of the best like 20 to 25 year old young jazz players, most of which have just graduated or about to graduate from like Juilliard and Berkeley school of music and Michigan, like the top conservatories. And it's a rigorous audition process to get in. It's totally free to them. And it's a really special thing. And then the teachers, I was one of the teachers that year are all folks that had some connection with Betty Carter. Like I played with her, when I was 20 years old and got a chance to tour and learn from her, she was mm. an incredible mentor to two generations of players, especially rhythm section players. So it's, it's a great program. It kind of keeps that connection there with Betty Carter and all that she did, you know, in her tutelage and passing down of information about the music. But I remember when I heard Sarah at the program, I was like, and I mean, all the players are great. So it was like an embarrassment of riches, these great players, <laughs> but there was something that really stood out about her. And I was like, wow, I usually play trio but I want to put a quartet together. And I immediately was like, I want to do Greg and Ruben. It just sort of popped in my head as something that would make sense with that combination. I felt like she had that sort of 
drive and vibe and essence of the way we like to play. Like that stuff that you can't mm. tell somebody to do. Like she just had it, like that way of talking, the yeah. way of interpreting, you know, the language. And then also I felt like she would really do some good things to sort of invigorate the three of us, keep us from getting old and stale, uh. you know? So, so it was a little bit of gimmick, but it's sort of a tactical thing too, because I mean, I love playing with Greg. We've done that. You know, it's like, how do we keep reinventing ourselves and a lot of times bringing in another element? Mm. But that was a kind of a risk because you just don't know. Sure. The rhythm section was set, but we're bringing in a new element. But she did amazing. I mean, everybody did. And their contributions were just stellar. And they brought the music that I wrote to life beyond what my expectations wow. and were huge contributors to their interpretation. And if all of what Peter just described wasn't enough, he took it one step further in terms of making it accessible and something the audience could experience, meaning do more with than just listen by turning the album into an interactive online course. <laughs> just brilliant, Peter. Congratulations. Walk us through that aspect of the project. Right. Yeah, it's kind of like the old school infomercials. It's like, and that's not all. You also get to, <laughs> It sort of did become that. But what I wanted to do, because we already had this wonderful community here at Open Studio, because I wrote the music, I was thinking about, like, how can I serve our community? What are they going to be interested in? And I just asked them, and I kind of had a feel for it anyway. But I was thinking about, we're always talking about how to do the specific different elements of playing jazz. So for me, it's like talking about solo jazz piano playing or playing in the trio or how do you accompany a vocalist or how do you play these voices, the real, like, nuts and bolts of how to do this. Mm. But the composition process is a little bit, more esoteric there's not as much great information about that and it's a lot of times it's kind of presented in a way where it's like you just have to figure it out you have to wait until the spirit moves you and something happens and i think some of that's true but there's a lot of specific things that i've learned and that i've gone through especially you know kind of refining with projects like this where you have to actually go through like writing the music and then thinking about how it applies to different instruments and like how do you write something and then take part of it away to make the whole better and all these little techniques that I've developed over the years. Wow. I was like, well, I'll just do a composition course with all the like 1200 plus lessons I've done over the years. I'd never done that specifically. Mm. So I was like, I'll just do it about these tunes. I just wrote uh, them. And so it's fresh in my mind and yeah. then it'll be fun because folks can hear the finished product and then I can give them a little bit of behind the scenes. I mean, the way I looked at it was like, you know, if you drink a great bottle of wine, you don't have to know where it's from to enjoy it if it tastes great to you. Mm. But if you know, oh, it comes from this specific vineyard in Italy and this region, you know, then you can appreciate it maybe a little more. It's just fun. It's interesting. Yeah, and yeah. then maybe you travel there and get to see it and meet the wine. You know, so it's like, how mm. deep do you want to go? We wanted yeah. to give them sort of a different level of going as deep as they wanted. Yeah, that's a great comparison, and I love what you just said, as deep as they wanted, because someone can enjoy the music on its own and or watch it back and see it visually, or they can go to the extent that you just did. So on that note, let's step away from the album itself for just a moment to have you take us deeper into what Open Studio is. Who is it for? When did you launch it? Why did you launch it? All those kinds of details. Yes. So Open Studio is the number one online jazz learning community and really jazz appreciation and jazz loving community. And we launched it in 2015. So we're getting close to nine years old, which is amazing to me because, you know, we started at nothing and now we have members in over 130 countries. Mm. We have over 20,000 active members, folks that have bought different courses. And we've got about 6,000 super active members that are like month by month, they're always doing stuff with us. So it's, mm. it's really an exciting thing. It's a very, you know, it's a niche. It's like a gathering place for people that are just like, on some level, just love to geek out about jazz, mostly about specifically how to play it. Jazz piano is kind of our forte, but we have drummers, we have bass players, we have great teachers, we have everything from just like, very informal, you can watch a video course at your own pace and learn as you go type of things all the way up to what we call open studio pro which is live classes over zoom with other folks with mm. some wonderful teachers that are offered six days a week a whole kind of ongoing program and it really just scratches an itch for a lot of folks you know mostly what you would call like adult hobbyists or amateurs at different levels the, some of which are really 
they might not be professional players, but they play at a very professional level. They could be. They might do whatever, and they, they play because they love it, and some of them are amazingly accomplished. But they're looking for you know resources, ways to get better, things to practice. Maybe they don't have access to a teacher or a community where they live. So we're kind of leveraging the online element, leveraging the Internet. And jazz has become such a worldwide interest and phenomenon that I kind of figured, I was like, how do we connect? Because I had been traveling for years, like touring all around the world. Mm-hmm. And I was always amazed at, like, how do these people know about jazz or get into it? Something mm-hmm. that I see as such a unique American art form. And, of course, it is in terms of its growth and development and where it was born. But like many great art forms, it's for everybody. And the music got around from recordings and radio first and all these things. And so people wanted to learn how to do it because they loved the way it sounded. So it's super exciting to be able to share. We have over 30 artists now on our roster. I mean, amazing, like Grammy Award-winning Ron Carter, Christian McBride, Diane Reeves, Mm. Aaron Parks. You know, a lot of really not only great artists, but great teachers and great mentors and people that really inspire in terms of how they talk about their craft. So it's just an exciting place and it's an exciting time. And it's an amazing community that we have. Yeah, Fantastic. Fantastic. And so audience, if you step back now into the music, into the album and away from open studio, and you keep in mind everything that Peter's been talking about, how it was done straight through one take, no edits, live streamed. There's another aspect, Peter, of what you did that I want to bring in which is that the music was complemented by live artwork that was created. We don't have the benefit of visuals with this show. So paint a mental picture for the audience of that element of Peter Martin and Generation S. Yeah, so I'm very fortunate here in St. Louis to have a friend who's an amazing artist, a world-class visual artist named Kababi Bayak. And he just so happens that his studio is right across the street from our studio. And so I had the idea of him doing an original piece for the cover, especially when we decided to do LPs, because I was excited. I'm like, wow, people are excited about LPs again. We got to do that. Mm. You know, as I was getting into jazz when I was like 12 and 13 years old and going to the record store and and getting into vinyl, it was always these beautiful covers, the photography or the artwork or whatever. So I wanted that element, not just to compliment, but to be a part of the creative process and to dovetail in with what we were creating. And so Kababi was game for that. And then I was like, well, we're creating the music live. Maybe we could create the art live. Like maybe that would be a way to connect the creation of them. And so when I presented the idea to Kababi, he was super interested in it. And we've done something similar to this before. So it wasn't too much of a risk. I did a solo piano performance some years back, and he did a sort of an auction for a, a wonderful charitable foundation here a painting while I was playing just solo mm, piano. Okay. It wasn't a recording or anything. So that kind of was always in the back of my head. He did such an amazing job with that, that I thought this could work. And so the added kind of fun benefit that I didn't realize of him being in the studio with us as we created it was, I was sort of thinking he'd be in the background, just painting and creating his magic mm-hmm. while we did our thing. But he set up real close in with us and was much more part of the process than I think he or I or any of us realized. And so his energy and being able to look over at him and see him, Mm. you know, with the brush in his hands was so inspiring to me and such a great kind of distraction from being nervous about one take and the music and am I going to get my part right? Are we, you know, is the tempo correct or whatever? It was just a really beautiful and calming part of the process that was kind of unexpected to me. And so, if you listen to the LP, you don't necessarily experience that. But if you see some of the videos, yeah, and we have, you know, videos for all the songs from the actual performances, of course, available on our YouTube channel, you'll be able to see Kababi there painting and creating this incredible work that he created for the album cover. Wow, wow, so cool, so cool. I'm joined today on the Now Hear This Entertainment guest line from St. Louis by composer, acclaimed jazz pianist, and open studio founder Peter Martin. Visit his official website at petermartinmusic.com. I will have a link to it on the show page for this episode on my podcast website, nhte.net. The new album, Peter Martin and Generation S, is available now via streaming platforms as well as on vinyl and CD. Peter will be performing this month on the Jazz Cruise, and he has already booked as far out as dates in May in New Hampshire, Virginia, and Missouri, So keep up with him online for details on where and when you can go see him perform live. 
Look for the links on his website to follow him on Instagram and to subscribe to his YouTube channel, which has well over 4 million combined video views. You heard him talk about the online educational platform, which you can find at openstudiojazz.com. I will put a link for that, too, on the show page for this episode on my podcast website, nhte.net. Yesterday, I had someone call me on the OWL app. He turned out to be a fellow podcaster who is up in Ontario, Canada. That's another great thing about using that app to meet and connect with other people is that it didn't matter that he was in a different country. It's not like a wireless plan where you have to look to see first, oh, wait, can I make international calls? Am I going to get charged extra for this? With OWL, you're not giving out your phone number and dialing people in the traditional way. You are making voice calls through their app. On a recent episode or two of this show, I mentioned how they have added the Community Connection Hub. Well, I just spoke last week with the founder of OWL, and he said there are even more features coming. Check it out. Here's how. On my podcast website, nhte.net, tap or click anywhere it says home, and then read the article I have posted there under the headline, Help Now a Phone um, App Call Away to learn more about OWL. I've also got links in there for you to download their app for free from either the App Store or Google Play. Plus, you will see my invitation code, which is a required field as you're setting up the app on your phone. Get on OWL and start on your way to making great new connections for your career. Peter, what an amazing resume you have. And it's not very often that I get to talk to someone who has been invited to perform at the White House on multiple occasions. Tell us about that, including what you can remember about the first time being asked to do so, which I'm sure had to be very nerve wracking. Yeah, so it's kind of a funny and ridiculous on my part (laughs) story about how that came to be. I got a call and I mean, this must have been it was President Obama. So his first term and basically I got a message saying, are you available on this date to play with a group of jazz musicians we're putting together for a special event at the White House. It's a steak dinner. And basically you'd be playing with like Chris Bode mm. and Diane Reeves and maybe Dee Dee Bridgewater. We're going to have a couple of different vocalists. And they were like, I know that you worked with some of them and I think they'd all like trust your playing. We're just going to have one rhythm section and then some featured, you know, vocalist and Chris Bode on trumpet and it should be a fun thing. And so I was like, of course, I'm there. I, let me do it. But I was thinking it's kind of weird. It's like a steak dinner. And I'm like, it's the White House. I guess that's fancy steaks. <laughs> and I kind of imagined that we were going to be playing in like the entryway as people walked in, like cocktail hour or something. I didn't know. But I was mm-hmm. like, it's the White House. This would be great. It turned out as we got closer to the event, I realized I wasn't listening correctly. They said state dinner. Oh, boy. So that was a little different because they were like, you got to wear a tux. You got to do this but it's going to be like a 30 minute concert as a presentation. It was a full on state dinner. There's always like a cultural performance component to it. Mm -hmm. And the Obamas, especially Michelle Obama, I think was really spearheading this because she was a huge Diane Reese fan and a huge jazz fan. She really Uh. wanted the theme to be jazz. So a huge honor for me. I mean, I got the gig, like I say, because they knew I knew how to accompany folks and I'm like, that's cool. I'll do whatever. And so The fun part about it was we put together this brief 30-minute performance, but everybody sat and listened. I mean, I remember the Obamas sitting there in the front row. It was one of those rooms that you see on TV where they're doing like press conferences, but they're not really that big of a room. They look bigger on Mm. TV, and they had a whole stage set up, and it was really interesting because everybody was listening. People were quiet. Like, there's all these dignitaries. Mm. You're looking out in the audience, and I was super nervous, but they were very... (laughs) respectful and just yeah. seemed to really enjoy the music and it was just a mini concert and so it was one of those kind of once in a lifetime things that I was honored to be a part of and was way better than like a steak dinner like I thought it was going to be. <laughs> <laughs> well it wasn't a once in a lifetime since you performed at the White House on multiple occasions but I love that description that you gave because when you were saying a steak dinner that is what I was thinking was oh they were background music but then when you say no it was a state dinner and this was a listening room that was there to watch us perform those are two very different atmospheres. Exactly yeah. It takes me a while to catch on sometimes, that's all. (laughs) I want to get back to Open Studio for a moment. And specifically, you're having taken the new album to an educational offering with access to lead sheets and the like. 
Do you see that being a trendsetter that others might copy, meaning that blueprint, that business model, if you will? And if so, are you flattered by it? Or is this almost like becoming someone that people would have to come to and get a license from to duplicate kind of like a franchise, you know, what you did for the whole Peter Martin and Generation S project that we heard about in the first half of the show? Yes. This whole sort of genre of online music education or e-learning, I think it's still very much in its infancy. And I think it's like, even thinking back to when I launched Open Studio in 2015, I'd already been doing online lessons for like five years before that. So I was super early into this. There was just a handful of people doing it. But even now, I think we're just getting to the point where people kind of understand what this means, understand what is possible. Like if you want to learn an instrument, could you actually do that online without a physical teacher there? Mm -hmm. I think the pandemic kind of taught a lot of people that you can do a lot of things online that they just never had experience. So that was a big push to get more people involved with these kind of things. But I think that there's a huge opportunity for innovation. There's a lot of other really exciting musicians and educators and everything in between involved with different programs. So it's still a little bit like the wild west in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. And it's not regulated at all. Not that it needs to be. We're not doing brain surgery or anything. <laughs> but I mean, people that are learning how to play music, this is an exciting thing for them. So I take it super seriously how we're presenting the material. I don't just sit back and say, well, I've got these great Grammy winning artists. Record whatever you want. We're constantly upping our quality and looking at ways to better present the music. We have an incredible platform that presents the videos, but also prevents sheet music that's not just PDFs and stuff. It's like actual online music that flows by as oh, wow. the video's going. So like wow. when you pause the video, the music stops. Like if you jump to another part of the music, it jumps to that part of the video. If wow. you slow it down, you can like loop different sections. So even that, I think probably five years from now, we'll look back and be like, wow, we're so much beyond that. But those are the kinds of things we're doing to try to make the online learning experience not only maybe almost as good as live in person, but offer things that it can't. I mean, there's certain things inherent in the system, like you can watch the videos and learn at any time, which is a huge advantage because normally we look at like, if you have a great teacher, it's great, but you got to meet them live and in person only when they're available. Maybe that doesn't work for you. Mm. So the kind of on demand, that's sort of always been known as an advantage to online education, but I think it can go well beyond that. Well, and now that you've gone to the lengths that you have in terms of describing how much there is to this, I see that as very proprietary. I'm talking about, you know, probably the software. You know, could someone, and granted, I'm going to be biased because now I've met you. And if I heard somebody saying, guess what we're going to do? We're going to do one take straight through with no edits. We're going to live stream it. And we're going to record it. <laughs> I'm going to go, oh, so you're doing what Peter Martin did. Because now I'm going to be kind of biased by having met you. But when you go to the lengths that you described, that is very proprietary. And if someone was actually able to duplicate that, then, yeah, you know, maybe they'll hear from Peter Martin's attorneys. But I think you've taken it to such great lengths that it is going to be pretty difficult to duplicate. I don't know that you could really stop somebody from saying, well, we're going to do a live stream and we're going to record it and it's going to be one take through. OK, well, you know, I wish maybe at the beginning you'd say, hey, Peter Martin did this. We're going to give it a try. I hope you enjoy it. I'm getting off track. I want to talk about later this month, I will actually not be attending the NAM show while we're talking about music products in Anaheim, California, which right. I have for all intents and purposes been at every year since January 2017. Peter, is that something that you attend or is it a case of, no, I have a close relationship with Steinway and I don't need to go to California to meet with <laughs> others in the piano world that I'm not going to end up doing business with anyway? You know, I've never attended, and I've always wanted to attend, uh. and I think I'm going to end up there at some point. There may be some folks from my Open Studio team that go this year, in fact. One of my engineers really wants to go. Part of it is just we've been so busy, and the company's been growing so much, really, since we started, that this time of year, it's always like to even take the time to go and do that. It seems like you see the videos of like, Stevie Wonder stops in here and is playing yeah. on this vintage vibe. I'm like, I want to be there and see that. I want to, you know... <laughs> But it seems like such a luxury, so I'm hoping to go at some point. I'm not sure that kind of our demographic of our students and our members, if there's a huge amount of overlap, because it always seems so like equipment-driven. But I'm really interested in that, too. And I mean, I've been a Steinway artist for like 20 years, 25 years or something. And I love their instruments. But I play like Vintage Vibe, 
I'm not even an artist with Vintage Bob, but we bought one here for the studio because I love it so much. We play on that, and I've got a Rhodes, and you know, I've got a little bit of keyboard fetish as well in me, so I'm sure I would <laughs> love getting lost at NAMM. Yeah, and I mean, there might even be a place for open studio there as well. In the meantime, I mentioned to the jazz crews that you will perform on this month as well as three dates that are already booked in May. Will those be with Generation S, or are they performances you'll do with other musicians, or are they solo Peter Martin? And for that matter, should we be looking for you to go out and do other shows with Generation S as part of a quote-unquote tour to promote this new album? Yeah, so this year, 2024, I'm kind of touring with a, several different things. For sure, Generation S, I also work fairly consistently whenever I can and whenever the scheduling gods allow. Christian McBride, who's an amazing bassist and way beyond just a bassist, but I mean, he's somebody I've known since we were both teenagers, one of the best musicians on the planet. And so every December, I work with a special group that he has called Inside Straight, and we play at the Village Vanguard in New York for a week kind of a residency that he does every year. And it's like one of the highlights of the year because I love that room. I think it's the best jazz club anywhere. And it's New York, you know, it's the whole thing. And so I'm doing some stuff with him this year. I'll likely be doing some stuff with Diane Reeves. I have a long association with her. I'm not like in her touring band anymore, but we did some stuff still together last year where she was special guest actually with Generation S. So those are kind of the main configurations that you'll see me. But the open studio... I still make a lot of the content. I'm also CEO and kind of running the operation. Mm. Certainly not single-handedly far from I've got a great team, but there's a lot of responsibility and just time in terms of keeping this engine running so that we can serve all the members that we have. And it's a real ongoing thing. And like I said, we're growing a lot. So there's a certain amount of <laughs> juggling between the, I've been an entrepreneur for a while. And I love that part of it. But then playing music and practicing and keeping my skills up, it's like they're both sort of full-time jobs that I love and appreciate. And on top of everything that we've talked about, you also have a podcast of your own, which is called You'll Hear It. Tell the audience about that show, who it's for, who your co-host is, what the two of you talk about, and so on. Yes. So my co-host is Adam Manis, who's also our creative director and an amazing jazz pianist in his own right here at Open Studio. And the You'll Hear podcast, we're like four years in now. We are the number one jazz podcast. But I'm always like, number one doesn't mean anything if it's no good. Mm. I think it's really good. (laughs) But it's really for jazz nerds, primarily. (laughs) You know, I mean, like, if you love to talk about, like, the different tracks on Miles Davis, Kind of Blue, and which is better, if you love to talk about, you know, a C minor 7, major 7 versus a C minor 7, dominant 7, like, we talk about all that stuff. We just have fun. It's totally unscripted. It's fairly planned out, but, I mean, it's basically Adam and I just geeking out on stuff that we're interested in, and I think our audience is. And, you know, we've got two keyboards set up. We call it the pod front now, like a special little room in our studio. But we basically just talk about different things. We take questions sometimes. We usually sort of have themes to each of the episodes. You know, I'm a huge podcast fan myself and big podcast consumer. I mean, I spent a lot of time listening to podcasts over the years. It was like really early on that train. So I love the sort of art form of the podcast. And I think what we do is really good. It's not as connected with open studio as some people might think. It's very much just connected with jazz. So we've got a kind of really cool audience and community around it. I mean, really around the world, we get a lot of interesting comments. We've got the YouTube channel for it and we do video on all the episodes. And I think podcast is such a great, format to connect over something that's a niche interest that people share that are all over the place, like a meeting place to just geek out on something that you love. The more niche, the better. So that's kind of what we do. To be clear, though, you'll hear it is not just for jazz musicians. You could be someone who really enjoys listening to jazz and still benefit from listening to your podcast. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Although, to be honest, we struggle with that because we want it to be more inclusive, but we do go down some rabbit holes that are very, (laughs) they're very bespoke to jazz musicians. Adam and I always meet like at the beginning of the year, like, what do we want to change with the podcast? That always comes up. It's like, should we make this more inclusive of just music lovers? Because jazz isn't the only kind of music we love. We just always come back to this place of like, we know jazz. We are who yeah, we are, and right. we have a great connection. It's a small market, so to speak, but it's one that we feel like we're very connected with. So I don't know. We may expand things a little bit and 
we certainly talk about stuff that we're passionate about, like Stevie Wonder and classical music and different things that are not just jazz, but there's always some kind of thread and connection back to jazz, for sure. Sure, sure. We're going to close today with another song from the new album, a track called Gratitude in Motion. Peter, before I let you go and I play that, share with the audience first all about this one, if you would, please. Yes, so this tune is really dedicated not in a formal way, but just in a super informal way to Kelly, who's my wife and my friend and my partner and all these great things for a long time. We went to high school. We've been together a long time, but this is kind of like a lot of gratitude I have for her, but also that we have for all the different things that have come our way. And the idea is just that gratitude is not a static emotion. It's an act. It needs to keep moving. And so that was sort of the just general vibe and feeling and spirit that I wrote the song with. So this is probably like the most accessible. Melodically, it's kind of my favorite on the album. It's got a really distinct and sort of singable melody. And I like it. I like it a lot. I have a lot of gratitude for it. (laughs) No doubt. No doubt. You should. And for the whole project. Congratulations, Peter, on the new album. All the best. We'll be looking for a lot of things from you in 2024. And I appreciate you making time to be on Now Hear This Entertainment. Oh, man, I had a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. You bet. You bet. With that, I will wrap up another new episode of Now Hear This Entertainment. My sincere thanks to composer, jazz pianist, and the founder of jazz education platform Open Studio, Peter Martin. Do visit his official website at petermartinmusic.com. As I mentioned before, I will have a link to it on the show page for this episode on my podcast website, nhte.net. Today you heard him talking about Peter Martin and Generation S, the eight-song album that was released December 1st. Find it on streaming platforms, digital music retailers, or purchase physical units available on both vinyl and CD. As I said earlier, Peter will be performing this month on the Jazz Cruise, and he is already booked as far out as dates in May in New Hampshire, Virginia, and Missouri, So do keep up with him online for details on where and when you can go see him perform live. In preparation for talking with him today, I followed Peter on Instagram, and I know he would appreciate you doing the same. Look for the link on his website to subscribe to his YouTube channel as well. There are almost 47,000 subscribers on there. You heard him talk about the online jazz education platform, which you can find at openstudiojazz.com. I will put a link for that as well on the show page for this episode on nhte.net. I do truly hope that you like this show, that you're enjoying what I'm doing every week on the Now Hear This Entertainment podcast. If you've made it all the way to the end, thank you for having stuck with Peter and I, and I'm going to assume that that means that you do like the podcast. You can take action to let me know that you appreciate the work that I do to keep making this show happen every week, every month, more than nine and a half years without missing once by going on my podcast website, nhte.net, and then using the yellow Buy Me a Coffee logo that you will see there. This is not a sponsor, by the way. It's not affiliated with any brand or chain. It's just a fun way for you to send your support, your thanks to me, including a note that I will see when you utilize that option. You can also just head directly to buymeacoffee.com slash Bruce W. That's going to do it for episode 517. Thanks ever so much for listening. I'll send you out today with another song from Peter Martin. This is the one he just talked about. It's called Gratitude in Motion. 